does a market pull you in? And the way we think about whether a market is pulling you in is, do you have lead flow coming from the market? Is a market signaling to you that you as a brand are being recognized by the market? Prospects of that market are uh, downloading your content and potentially becoming leads. This is Inside HubSpot where we take you behind the scenes to uncover the tactics and strategies that grew HubSpot to a $2 billion company with more than 180,000 customers globally. I'm your host, Kat Warboys, and throughout the show, we'll hear from HubSpotters, experts in their field, on how we pioneered the inbound methodology, built an award-winning culture, uncovered new channels for growth, created a blog with more than 11 million subscribers, and much, much more. Whether you're a startup or a scale-up, a marketer or the CEO, you'll learn from our triumphs and our missteps that can be applied to help you grow better. Taking us behind the scenes at HubSpot today is our Executive VP of Customer Success, Jitu Matani. Jitu has been with HubSpot for an incredible 14 years, possibly the most tenured HubSpotter we have had on the show yet. In his current role, G2 is responsible for the vision as well as the execution of customer service and support of HubSpot's global customer base. But we'll have to get him back on the show another day to discuss that because what we actually want to talk about today is G2's prior remit, where he served as HubSpot's senior VP of sales and managing director of international operations, really driving HubSpot's growth around the world. G2 is a true global citizen with HubSpot and also his former role as a consultant in the CRM space. G2 has lived and worked in several countries, including the US, Ireland, France, Hong Kong, India, and Singapore, which is where I was able to meet G2. I'm excited to have G2 on the show today. Our conversations are always good. G2, welcome. Kat, thank you so much for that introduction. That was uh, a wonderful intro, uh, probably more credit than I truly deserve. So thank you for that. Not at all. You're very modest. Uh, we could have we could have done more, I think. <laughs> but I have to ask before we kick into the topic today, 14 years at HubSpot, what has kept you here so long? It still feels like day one for me every day. Uh, I feel like each year at HubSpot brings new opportunities and also new challenges, and it just keeps things uh, really exciting uh, no matter, you know, what day I show up. I'd say a good part of my 14 years was doing international expansion, where I spent about seven years on the road, uh, living uh, a couple of years in Dublin, Ireland, uh, opening our offices in Europe, and a couple of years in uh, Singapore, where I met you when I was in Sydney, and we opened offices, of course, Sydney, Singapore, and uh, Tokyo. So yeah, a good chunk of my uh, 14 years were spent on the road. And uh, I returned to the Boston area about uh, four years ago and started managing our uh, global customer success organization close to three years now. Yeah, it's, a, it's an awesome story. And like when we talk to many HubSpotters, it's the variety, I think, that keeps, keeps people here. We often hear about the people. HubSpotters love working with other smart people, but also that variety. And you've definitely had variety in your role here. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that, Kat. And, you know, I've done a bunch of things from partner sales to sales and now customer success. And uh, I'd say at the end of the day, what really matters is uh, our people, our culture, and how we solve for the customer. And that's been our North Star since day one when Brian and their mesh launched HubSpot 17 years ago. And, you know, our customers have shared with us their challenges, their way of growing with us, which has helped us 
go from a small app 17 years ago to a true platform today. So yeah, it still feels like day one because our opportunity with our base continues to grow and our platform continues to grow uh, with the with the growth of our customers. Yeah, I love that. Feels like day one. <laughs> when uh, you mentioned this before, but you and I actually met in Singapore, where you were leading our, our sales team and international ops there, and I was in sales enablement. That was my my first role at HubSpot, but. I'd love for you to tell us the story about how we got there because we didn't just offer, uh, open an office on day one, right? Uh, and you were very much part of the attempt to start to suss out the region and you were selling into the region from Boston, which I'm sure involves some interesting hours. But we have many um, brands in uh, the JPAC region who are at that stage where they're thinking about, you know, moving borders and growing internationally. So I'd love for you to walk us through, you know, what were those early days like? The early days... Uh... <laughs> are, you know, going to jog my memory back to like almost like 2011. Uh, that's when we actually started thinking of uh, opening our first international office. And as some quick background for the audience, we, we launched HubSpot out of Cambridge, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. That was almost 17 years ago. Uh, so we think of like the U.S. as like our core market. Mm-hmm. And we got to a point where we had great uh, product market fit. We started thinking about uh, our first uh, non-U.S. office, and we had decided that we want to go to Europe and uh, sell and service into uh, primarily English-speaking countries in uh, Europe. So we started thinking about it back in 2011, and uh, we couldn't make a decision on the actual uh, goal live of opening an operation in Europe. And the big uh, blocker or the big reason we sort of like halted on making a final decision is we looked at uh, our economics. And we think about our economics like from a LTV to CAC standpoint. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the way to think about LTV is uh, the revenue you would get on average from a customer during their lifetime with you to the cost of acquiring them. And uh, when we looked at our LTV to CAC back in 2011, it was good, but not great. And it was not great because our uh, retention numbers were, again, just good, not great. So it pulled down our LTV to CAC, and we decided to uh, pause in 2011. We decided not to open an office in Europe and first get our economics in a better place and then open uh, an operation, which eventually ended up happening in 2013 in uh, Dublin, Ireland. So, you know, the way I would think about it is if I were looking to open uh, an international office, uh, Think about your unit economics. Think about, like, do you have a great product market fit? Because if you have great product market fit, it should show up in something like LTV to CAC. It should show up in your retention. And that's usually a good sign uh, that you should start thinking about uh, your first office outside your core market. One concept that uh, I think a lot of people may have heard of, but I will just sort of like share is something that we call S-curves. And you can think of like your core market as your first S-curve. And it looks like an S-curve, really, right? Like when you're early stage, you're at the bottom of your S-curve. But when you have great product market fit and great economics, it should show in your business being kind of like in the middle of the S-curve. So that was our sign uh, back in uh, 2013 that we had reached better retention. We were in the middle of the first S-curve. And we decided to launch a second S-curve, which would be uh, our first uh, office outside the U.S. and start going more global or go more international. Yeah, yeah. 
So that was Europe. We wanted to make our um, economics, make sure they were actually stacking up there. You have helped us launch in other markets. Do you see that approach or other considerations that you need to take into factor for different markets? Uh, I understand that we wanted to go say into non-English, sorry, other English markets first. Um, But, you know, is there ever a case where actually you need to reverse engineer that a little bit so your, uh, your unit economics actually improve once you are on the ground and you're spending, say, time with customers and you're seeing better retention then, like, is it a bit of a chicken and egg example in, in some markets? Or, or how do you see that playing out in, across the world? Yeah, so the way we've uh, approached it is, uh, I think what you're asking, Kat, is like, how did we end up like choosing more markets to enter? Yeah, yeah. Is it the same model every time? Are there different uh, aspects that we look at to help make those decisions? Because as we know, all markets are slightly different. They pose new challenges as well as great new opportunities. Yeah, you know, in the early days when uh, we decided to open Dublin uh, to go after like English speaking Europe, it was a relatively easy decision because with Dublin, we were able to get access to uh, multilingual talent uh, in Dublin and it helped us go after uh, Germany, France, and of course the UK. Sort of like what I would think about like developed markets that were either uh, in the early days like the UK English speaking. But then we had to start making decisions like non-English speaking, like uh, like Germany or France, and uh, we had to go from using our uh, you know straightforward, yep, it makes sense, go do it because it's a UK to like, well, you got to have a more analytical approach to choosing markets, and uh, you know the lesson I've learned uh, with going international is not all big markets are easy. Mm-hmm. They can look easy because they look big, but once you're in there, there's a lot of like things that you need to uh, think about to succeed in the market. And uh, we've come up with this framework uh, that we use all the time now. And, you know, the way we think about it is choosing markets needs uh, a data-driven approach. And we think about two uh, areas when deciding on whether to choose a market or not. The first area that we double click into is what we call uh, operational complexity. And the way I would think about uh, operational complexity is, is it easy or is it hard to operate in that market? And there are different things you can look into when you uh, factor in operational complexity. But we as HubSpot, we look at six things when we think about the operational complexity of a market. So we think about like uh, legal complexity, political risk, paying taxes, resolving insolvency, enforcing contracts, uh, employment laws. Because if you're going to open an operation uh, in a market, decide to choose a market, you're going to need to, uh, one, uh, hire talent. And the other is you're going to need to uh, have customers who are paying your contracts So by looking at those six factors, we essentially would score every market uh, on easy complexity or very complex from an operational complexity standpoint. Now, operational complexity is like one side. The other side that we would look at is how small or how big is the market? Uh, I suspect uh, many members in your audience would call it like addressable market or total addressable market. And what we would do is, you know, we would look at a market and as HubSpot, 
we generally sell to companies that are between, say, one and 2,000 employees in size. And we sell to companies that are in technology, in services, marketing agencies. So for a given market, we will use public uh, data sources and we will quantify how many prospects are potentially you know, available in a market. We also sell a CRM platform, so we will take percent of users of a, a given company to ultimately run some basic math to quantify how small or how big is the market. Now, if you bring those two things together, on one side, you have uh, operational complexity. You can almost think of like you can take a market and say, is it green or red? Green being it is low complexity. Red being it's very complex if you use those six factors. You could also like almost think about uh, the size of the market in the form of bubbles. Is it a small bubble, small market, or is it a big bubble, big market? So if you overlay that complexity against uh, size, you end up with a really interesting view that tells you which markets are easy or difficult from a complexity standpoint and which markets are small or big. So it sort of like grounds you and has grounded HubSpot to be objective in uh, our decision making when choosing markets. Yeah, I think uh, maybe the audience may be hoping that it would spit out a score that would tell you, yes, green light, go into this market or not. But it's it's not the case, right? It is it is just kind of setting you up for, I guess, the uh, opportunity versus the challenge of any given market. There's no sort of right or wrong on that one. There's no perfect score that that diagram can spit out. It is just helping you weigh up um, some of those complexities against the opportunity. Is that right? And kind of really helping you form that more objective opinion, as you said. That is correct, Kat. And the way I would think about it is when you look at that complexity and the size of the market side by side, it's going to help you almost like create uh, a stack rank or stack ranking of uh, markets, uh, you know, from you should prioritize to maybe no, that's probably not a market that you may want to enter. And, you know, I'll give you an example. Like we, we looked at uh, Germany, big market medium complexity. And we decided like Germany was a market that we needed to win in. So we decided to prioritize it from uh, an investment standpoint. We also looked at China, huge market, but very complex. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I would share with the audience, Kat, is uh, the complexity and uh, size of the market is a starting point. Eventually, you're going to need to make a decision whether to actually make the investment and enter a market. And this is where like, I really want uh, CEOs and other founders and you know, uh, executives to be thoughtful on that final decision on whether to enter or not. The way we've thought about it is, does the market pull you in? Yeah. Because ideally, you want the market to pull you in. And the way we think about whether a market is pulling you in is, do you have lead flow coming from the market? Is a market signaling to you that you as a brand are being recognized by the market? Uh, prospects in that market are uh, downloading your content and potentially becoming leads. So we've almost like, you know, we've graded our markets by complexity and size. And then the next thing we look at is a market pulling us in. So I'll give you an example. The UK was pulling us in, but we already had an operation in Dublin. And we had talent in Dublin, so we were able to sell and service into the UK from our Dublin operation. 
I'll use another example, say uh, France and Germany. The market was pulling us in and we had talent to address that demand from our multilingual base in Dublin. But eventually we got to a point where we just couldn't find enough multilingual talent in Dublin. So we made that decision to go in country and open an operation in Berlin and in Paris. And uh, I would use that sort of like that delete flow and pulling you in because I've seen a lot of companies make a decision to go and enter a market. They put a flag and they're like, we're open. Well, where are the prospects? <laughs> yeah, where where are everyone? the leads? Yeah, where is everyone? Well, you should have done some groundwork, like driving some demand, like growing your brand in terms of marketing and inbound so that when you eventually make that decision, you're entering in a really good place. So you're bet on the market, you have some demand, so you're maximizing the return on your investments by actually entering the market. Yeah. And I know, I think that's a great point. Definitely um, looking into some of those leading indicators, but I also know we would, um, because I think you did this a little bit yourself back in the day where actually start selling into it from wherever your current office is, like start to gauge how those conversations are going with, by using your sales reps, right? You're absolutely right, Kat. And this is where, uh, you know, like, it's almost like there's like a formula here, right? Whereby you can quantify complexity and size of the market. Like that gives you one view. Your next step is like, you can choose a market, but when you choose it, let's do some groundwork so the market is pulling you in. So if you can operate from maybe a centralized location without a physical presence in a market, keep doing it until you really have to go into the market with a physical presence. And then the third thing to keep in mind is, I think what you're getting to with this question, Kat, is like, what is your go-to-market? <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned you could have your own sales reps, you could have your own uh, customer success managers. Uh, that's one go-to-market option. The other go-to-market is partners and uh, a partner strategy where partners can be your feet on the ground and can uh, sell and service on your behalf. The third go-to-market that we use a lot at HubSpot is what I would call like freemium, where you can have like your prospects actually start using your product uh, without actually humans playing a, a role in terms of getting them to actually implement the product. So I would think about those go-to-market motions. My advice is, uh, you know, don't take a one-size-fits-all go-to-market approach with a given market. Think about the market and uh, what the market needs and then decide on a go-to-market to succeed in that, in that market. The other thing I would think about is like the complexity of your product. Because if you have a high complex product, I'll just use an example, and you're entering a market that is also high complex, let's say Japan, you have a high complex product and you have a high complex market. Yeah. You're probably going to need partners on the ground to help you in a high complex product and high complex market environment. Yeah. But if you have a high complex product and a low complex market, let's say the UK, that's a really good place for you to use uh, partners in conjunction with your own go-to-market teams where your partners and your go-to-market teams are actually working hand in hand. 
I think it's a fantastic point. I think people automatically assume, or maybe there's some pride in that we have a physical presence. You know, we've opened an office, we're physically there. We have the same number of marketers that we had in our head office and the same number of sales. And there's a couple of different ways to approach that. And maybe they're not forever. Like maybe, as you say, it gets to a point where the market's pulled you in so much, you do want that physical presence. But there is a number of strategies there to try before necessarily putting so many headcounts and investments that just may be unneeded, at least in the short term. Uh, I think it's an excellent point. I, I want to move on because I think you've given us heaps to think about in terms of how do we think about market selection? How do we um, weigh up the pros and cons and actually select on which is the next best market for us to move into as a, as a brand? But, you know, once you're there, say you do go down the route where you have a physical presence, you know, what happens next? What are some from your perspectives when you have done this um, are some of the foundational elements to get right once you're actually in a market? We've done this multiple times. And uh, what I would share when you enter a market is like you want to start your preparation before you enter the market. Like think about your uh, your PR strategy. Think about like uh, what do you want uh, the first uh, couple of months to look like. And this is where like you really want to get off on a good, strong note because when you don't get off on a strong note, it uh, doesn't give you the momentum in the early days. And it's a lot about like getting momentum early on because your teams want to see that you have the momentum to succeed and win in the market. And there are a couple of things I would encourage anyone to think about is, uh, you know, what we did in the early days is we hired an awesome uh, recruiter and an awesome office manager because uh, culture matters to us. And we wanted to make sure when we do open an operation, we, we really treat the uh, local culture as, uh, you know, almost like a first class citizen. We don't want to take our culture from our existing offices and try and replicate it in uh, a local market. I think that's a recipe to not succeed is you want the local market to uh, form its own culture. So we had an awesome office manager who played an active role in uh, helping us plant seeds on uh, things we could be doing in the office to help us like create an awesome culture. The other thing that I would recommend doing is uh, keep the bar really high with hiring, mm -hmm. which is why in the early days we hired a recruiter. Because when you're hiring with a high bar, you're ensuring that your first wave of hires maintain a high quality and they're going to be in a position to succeed. At the same time, you also want to hire with uh, you know, a few attributes, like they've got to have like uh, belief in your mission. They've got to have passion and commitment because let's accept it. There is some risk when you join an operation which is opening uh, a local presence and they're in the early days. So don't try and replicate the culture. Make sure you let the local culture like uh, lead. Uh, don't let your HQ culture lead. Let the local culture lead. And the other is make sure you keep the bar high uh, from a hiring standpoint. Uh, hire with leadership in mind because when you open a market, you do want your early folks to step into leadership roles. So we actually had an attribute on leadership in addition to 10 other attributes that we would use when interviewing folks. So we would keep all those attributes, including leadership, in mind when we were hiring people. And uh, the third one I would say, you know, when you enter a market is uh, it's a journey and you better be uh, 
ready to commit and support your local teams in these markets. If you open an operation and just assume that they're just going to figure it out, I don't think that's the way it usually plays out. So you're going to need to plan as a leadership team, you know, how many trips are you going to plan to make to go into that office? How are you going to empower those local teams to give you feedback on what's working and what's not working? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, like, what are you doing to support them with resources? So, for example, each time we opened a market, we would actually send a small uh, group of expats. Uh, We would call them the uh, launch team, sometimes also call them the tiger team. The tiger team would go to each market, spend six to 12 months with the local hires, give them the right focus, coverage. It's almost like a teacher-student ratio in a class. So you have like great ratio. So you're setting up the local hires for success. I'm going to guess that not many people listening thought you were going to lead with culture and recruiters as your first hires, (laughs) which I think is fantastic. I think it's such a good tip. uh, And you're clearly very passionate about the people and the culture side, right? And that's that long-term view to making sure I think that the office is and the region is successful because it doesn't come down to people. I want to sort of touch on that just a little bit more because you talked about that, you know, that importance of letting the local culture lead. At the same time, we want those values that and we're big on values at HubSpot to be really distilled within that local culture. How do you think about the balance? You've already touched on this a little bit. You know, we sent uh, the Tiger team to help bring that flavor of what HubSpot is all about. You make sure you've got great recruiters. Anything else that is helpful in fostering an environment where people can feel like they have that opportunity to create their own culture, but still feel connected to the bigger brand presence? Like anything that you've seen uh, during your time that's worked particularly well? Any other tips on that one? Absolutely, Kat. And when I was sharing earlier, uh, I definitely don't want like someone considering opening a market to like drop like what I would call like almost like non-negotiables, you know, sort of like you may have like a core set of values. HubSpot has a core set of values. We have something called uh, our culture code where we talk about something called heart, where, you know, we expect all HubSpotters to be uh, humble, empathetic adaptable, remarkable, and transparent. Those are like HubSpot's baseline values. Like wherever we go, we expect every HubSpotter to, you know, amplify heart. But when I think about like local culture, I'm thinking more like, you know, when we open an operation in a market, like let's say uh, Japan or in Germany, people are people at the end of the day. They cherish their own local culture things that they do that brings uh, excitement and passion to their day-to-day. So, you know, for example, it could be a team event, you know, a way to celebrate a a new customer win or a new customer success. We want them to celebrate the way they would celebrate in Japan or celebrate the way they do in Germany. They don't need to celebrate the way we do in the U.S. or in Australia, for example. So that's one element is like, empower the teams to celebrate their wins in the best way that matches their culture and brings excitement to uh, to all of them. The other thing that I was referring to with like, let the local culture lead is a bit of like, ultimately, it's about the customer. How does a customer want to engage with you in your market? So in the US or more Western markets, Customers engage in a certain way whereby they may be comfortable with going through a sales process from start to finish 
over a Zoom call or virtually. But in certain markets, let's just say Japan or in Germany, they're comfortable going through the sales process to a certain extent over Zoom. But eventually, depending on the type of customer, the size of the customer, there might be a requirement to engage more face-to-face during the later stages of the sales process. So we're like teams, you know your customer the best. You tell us what is the right thing to solve for the customer and to solve for their opportunities and challenges. So that's one example whereby, you know, you make tweaks based on what the market, you know, needs to operate in the right way. And this is where, like in some cases, we've had customers who would say we need to have our uh, onboarding or our kickoff call in person. And we're happy to do that in certain cases, or we will pull in partners who can play an active role in onboarding our customers, who can be our feet on the ground. I love those examples. Uh, I think that I, I also listen to the customers and letting, in that way, customers help like lead the culture as well. Having worked in a region for seven years, uh, I might add my observation on this as well is because you've you've led really, you know, well with that important fact that let the local teams develop and 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 determine what that looks like. I also see a HubSpot has done quite a good job at making sure that our head office, our global market, in this case, North America, is also very accepting and acknowledging of that. So it's a, it's a little bit two-way. So what I mean by that and examples that I've seen um, are, you know, when we have our company meeting, that we make sure there's international representation by inviting customers. So part of our company meeting is often to hear or have a Q&A with customer. We're quite good at making sure we invite customers from different regions to that so that our central teams are also learning and understanding about the way our different customers across the world need to be served. Um, I've also seen some really fantastic things in terms of our North America team accepting um, and embracing and supporting what is happening for our regional teams. when we had the very devastating fires in Australia of summer 2020, um, this was in the marketing organization, G2, so I'm not sure if you saw this, but um, Kip, our CMO, started a fundraiser. um, And if we basically hit the goal internally of raising $10,000 at our kickoff, Kip, uh, and um, I think it was John Dick as well, wore blew up dinosaur suits. They They were forced to wear them and run around the event wearing these suits in terrible hot summer weather that it was. And I think it's just really nice displays of that other end of the spectrum, which is seeing your head office um, really embracing and recognizing uh, everything that's happening in your in your regional markets. Yeah. Yeah. Those are excellent examples, Kat. And uh, I think ultimately what we're both getting to is if you try and do this like a top-down approach where you take things from the top and just force it down to local markets, it's simply not going to work. It needs to be a bit of like, sure, there are certain things that are like top down, but you need to approach it also bottoms up. Like, what do our customers and what do our people need to succeed? And this is where your first example is a bit of like, how do you bring the voice of the customer into your conversations? And I would, you know, be thinking about the voice of the customer even before opening a market. Like, if you've got a couple of customers before you, go all in and you think about back to that complexity and size of the market, interview your few customers and try and understand, like, is this a customer base that matches your persona and your customer profile? What are some of their challenges? And are you going to be able to solve those challenges 
in a durable and a sustainable manner. And then the other one is on the people side. Uh, you know, with international markets, it's a big investment. It's expensive. And mm-hmm. uh, this is where, like, uh, missteps are not uh, very CFO-friendly. You want to make sure you minimize those missteps. And the best way to minimize it is here from your teams, what's actually happening in the front line. A lot of what uh, Kip and John did is uh, supported you and the team. And I think this is where, like, if you're going to do an international market, uh, you want to make sure your executive team is all aligned and committed to truly doing whatever it takes to helping your team succeed in the local market. Yeah, agreed. That continued investment and support is so crucial. And I think on that point, you know, we've talked a lot about the people side of things, but, you know, in those years, early years where you're establishing, if you are the regional MD, what metrics, what success uh, KPIs should you really be focused on in communicating back to make sure that the organization is seeing that growth is supportive and those investments continue to come? Like what are you laser focused on? There are a couple, and you know, one that I mentioned earlier is uh, LTV to CAC, right? Mm-hmm. Which uh, is lifetime value to cost of customer acquisition. And in that formula, you would have an input around retention. In the early days when you open a market, uh, what I would say is don't expect your retention to be like as good as maybe your more mature markets. Because you're acquiring customers in a new market, you're onboarding them, you're driving better usage outcomes, you're just going to need to make some tweaks in terms of uh, ideal customer profile. Do you have the right uh, demand type? Are your sales reps selling in the right way? Are we onboarding and driving usage? So that was one of the KPIs we would look in the early days is uh, simply like retention. What does retention look like by the different cohorts? of customers that we're acquiring. The other KPI we would look at in our case, you know, we have our partner ecosystem plays uh, an amazing role in uh, selling and servicing our customer base. And, you know, they work with our go-to-market teams. We would look at like how well our partners doing in each of these markets from uh, both the selling and also from a retention standpoint. And uh, what else could we be doing to support them to improve both their metrics on uh, sales and services. The third one that we looked at simply is, you know, at the end of the day, the executive team will want to know, yes, it's an investment in the early days. And generally, like when we see international markets, there's a bit of a slow burn. It's growing, but it's not like up and to the right. It takes some time to start getting the uh, full engine cranking. And when you think about the engine, there is... uh, you know, your leading indicators, like are you able to uh, drive prospects into your flywheel or into your uh, funnel? Like, is the market paying attention to you? The other leading indicator would be uh, your rep productivity. Like, are your uh, new hires in a new market ramping and selling at a similar rate as your more mature markets? One shouldn't expect them to be exactly like your mature market because your mature market is mature. A lot of resources supporting your marketing team, your sales team, your customer success teams. So I would look at leading indicators. Ultimately, like if you have good retention, your demand is growing at a healthy pace, and you can see your sales team gradually improving their productivity month over month. Those are like the KPIs that we would look at to make sure 
yes, the LTV to CAC is not as high as some of our scaled markets, but because of leading indicators, almost like the inputs are moving the right direction, we will get to a point where we have great product market fit. At that point, it just becomes more of like we need to invest more to get the flywheel to spin faster. Yeah, the efficiency, for sure. Titi, I know you must have some stories. You've seen a lot uh, uh, across the globe, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure you've got something up your sleeve. Is there Has there been a time, a bit of a gotcha moment or something didn't go as planned or you just really learned something that was, I guess, key for your own um, learnings about what it means to go into new markets and cultures? Like, I'm sure you've got one up your sleeve and I'm going to press, press you for it today. I've had a couple of portals. Uh I would say, you know, uh, I don't want to call them my favorite potholes because potholes shouldn't be your favorites, <laughs> but the ones that have taught me some lessons. The first one would be you can't take a one-size-fits-all go-to-market approach with the uh, international markets. You really need to think about the ease or complexity of your product and also the complexity of that market. And you should really think about go-to-market motions that match the uh, market that you're entering. I think in some cases, we we didn't lean as much as we could have on the partner go-to-market motion in certain markets. And we sh- eventually ended up leaning more on partner go-to-market. And I think that's been awesome. Our partners are amazing. They play a huge role in our success in many of our international markets. The second one I would say is When you open a market, eventually you want a single leader that you can count on. You know, if you're sitting as an executive, as a founder, or as a CEO in Sydney or in Boston, you want a leader that you can say, I'm calling so-and-so in Berlin or in Paris or in London. That's your single threaded leader who's uh, a voice of that operation back to you as the executive team sitting in your HQ. And getting that leadership hire is extremely critical. When you get the leadership hire right, it accelerates your growth. But when you miss on the leadership hire or you take too long to get the right leader, it actually pulls you back by a year or two in that market. So I would start thinking if you decide to enter a market, Yes, think about your uh, expat uh, team or your launch team, but get going with your uh, local leader hiring on day one because it does take time to find an awesome leader. That would be the second one. I wouldn't say that's a pothole, but that's just something that I learned through experience. It's so much more easier when you've got the right leader on the ground who's thinking about culture, thinking about the customer base, thinking about the site, and ultimately the voice of the business uh, in the community. The third, uh, I would say, lesson learned is uh, a bit related to the second one is, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to need to hire people. You're going to need to hire leaders. The lesson I've learned is uh, don't hire a leader that is exactly like your executive team or looks and sounds and behaves exactly like me. Because that's not what I'm looking for. We should be looking to hire a leader who understands the local culture, understands the local customer need, and what are the dynamics of the local market. I think, you know, the lesson I've learned in very complex markets like in Japan is 
because it is so complex, you're looking for a leader who can make it sound less complex by sounding like you. But that's, I think, a pothole. Yeah. Uh, you want to actually hire a leader who doesn't necessarily need to have, yes, I agree with you. This is how you should do it. No, no, no. Here are the things we need to keep in mind to succeed in Germany or to succeed in France or to succeed in Japan. That's sort of like the challenge of mindset. So your executive team is not making big assumptions and can learn from a, a leader who's bringing diversity of thought and diversity of experience into the fold. I think that's a great tip. It can often feel like the easier way if you've got somebody who's saying, yeah, no, we, we can just roll that out as we did here or there. Yeah. You need that person to challenge you. And unfortunately, you have to, as an exec team, work through those challenges if you're going to be successful in market. I think that's I think that's a great lesson. Yeah, a lot of folks want the, uh, the easy path, which I get, yep. but they're not easy paths. Uh, they're high effort. There's an investment, but also the return is incredible. But there are definitely uh, lessons you want to apply, get the right leader, and take an analytical approach as you think about uh, choosing markets and entering markets. And don't forget the people and the culture. That's absolutely critical. Getting that right uh, can really like create this amazing cascade effect of like going much, much more faster. Well, thank you for sharing all of those lessons and some of the potholes with us today, <laughs> getting very honest on, on those. But um, it's been, yeah, just incredible to work with you over the years as we've, as we've scaled globally and yeah, fantastic to see our international uh, markets kind of um, growing over the past seven years that I've been here. So thank you for sharing those lessons today, G2. I know it's uh, getting to the end of a long day for you. So um, thanks for joining us on the show. No, absolutely, Kat. Uh, I'm excited uh, that I was able to share some of these uh, lessons with your audience. And uh, hopefully uh, this gives them a few things to think about and uh, hopefully create their own special international journey that it's been for us at HubSpot. Thanks so much, G2. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Inside HubSpot. If you liked what you listened to and want to hear more stories, please subscribe and check out all resources in our show notes or head to hubspot.com forward slash inside hubspot. We'll catch you on the next episode.